Meanwhile, recorded live by Lava Lamp Lounge, it's somewhere in between a radio zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome to a little history lesson about how it all started. It's issue 36, the first inauguration, part one. On April 16th, 1789, today's the anniversary, in fact, George Washington left Mount Vernon for New York City. Two days previous, a Mr. Thompson had arrived, who was appointed by the Senate to deliver to General Washington this unanimous decision that he serve as the first president of the United States of America. With David Humphreys in tow, the three of them set out on a journey and would not arrive until April 30th. In a lot of ways, because he was the first, and because so much has happened since then, and because inaugurations no longer happen in April, and because, well, because of a million different things, the story of George Washington is often unknown, forgotten except by only the nerdiest of history students who happen to love to tell you all about this gap in, well, most of America's collective memory. Because of all of that, today seems like a perfect day to begin a journey of our own, one that will start on April 16th and end on April 30th, much like the one that George Washington took so many years ago. But our journey is going to be with the story of Washington himself, someone I think it's high time we all got to know a lot better. George Washington, the man nobody knows. He has been buried for 200 years under tons of plaster, stone, ink, patriotic bombast. We remember him by his little hatchet and the face on a dollar bill. When we think of him, it is as a grim, inhuman hero staring down at us from the walls of classrooms and museums, the Copleys and the Stuarts. Washington, the man, is lost. And yet there is no need for him to be lost. We have countless documents, letters, accounts. We have the research of historians, the guesses of psychologists. What was he like? What was he like when he took off his wig and unbuttoned his waistcoat? What of the human being whose greatness is only magnified by his struggle with himself, with his human longings and fears. He never cared about me. He treated me like I was an old almanac, out of date. His mother, Mary Ball Washington. I have never honored or respected him. He mistreated his men and campaigned unwisely. General Charles Lee. Malice could never blast his honor. John Adams. His features were indicative of the strongest and most ungovernable passions. Had he been born in the forests, he would have been the fiercest among the savages. No casual judgment, but the words of Gilbert Stuart, who spent many days painting the man from life. With respect to myself, I think the arrangement is not 
quite as it ought to have been, that I, who'd much rather be at home, should occupy a place with which a great many younger and gayer women would be prodigiously pleased. I'm still determined to be cheerful and to be happy. His wife, Martha Custis Washington. The world has no business to know the object of my love declared in this manner to you when I want to conceal it. George Washington to Sally Fairfax, four months after his public engagement to Martha Custis. Where did his greatness lie? Well, certainly he was by any standards a great man. Historians are inclined very often to conceive of him as some sort of savior, born perfect and filled with virtue. The truth is that he developed as a man and as a personality over a period of many years, and this is the key to understanding him. Moncure Conway wrote in 1892, The Washington family has passed into a conventionalization curiously resembling that of the Holy Family. The savior of his country has, for his mother, a saintly Mary. His father is kept in the background like Joseph. He is born in a mean abode. The first I ever knew Augustine had a son by his second wife was when he wrote that he was coming to Westmoreland to visit me. He just said, bringing my baby son George with me. I learned that George had been born at Wakefield, Virginia, on February 22nd, 1732, a new style calendar. His father, Augustine, was a friend of mine, had iron mines and few plantations. Augustine died when George was 11, a throat infection. Just like his son, come to think of it. Well, anyway, I never did get to know his wife very well. I lost track of George after his father died. I think his mother sent him away right after that uh, to live with his half-brother, Lawrence. I guess they didn't get on too well, uh, him and his mother. The whole record of Mary Ball Washington's life shows that she was a selfish woman, preoccupied with her own needs. She was generous enough, but she wasn't content with giving. She wished passionately to possess in return, according to historian Francis Bellamy. Unlike the other children, Mr. Bellamy writes, George could not respond to this devouring need for devotion on his mother's part. The resulting conflict was so bitter that he was engaged in it for almost the rest of his life. As a matter of fact, he was the only one of Mary Ball's sons to surmount her powerful maternity. Charles died in drink, Samuel of women, and Jack remained tied to her all his life. No, sir. In all the years I was with him as his man, she never come once to see him. For 30 years after he married Miss Custis, his mother never showed a face at Mount Vernon. In the 83rd year of her life, Mary Ball Washington lay on her deathbed in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I only want to hear from him with his own hand that he is well. She did not hear. Alone, without a word from his mother, he had been sworn in as first president of the United States in New York City. On August 25th, 1789, Mary Ball Washington died of cancer. In the words of Mr. Bellamy, she was a tragic figure in any age, but one who had made her son a rebel in his own self-defense. 
a fact whose vast importance to the world still cannot be overestimated. At the age of 11, following his father's death, his mother sent him to stay with his half-brother, Lawrence Washington, at Mount Vernon. It has ever been my opinion... Lawrence Washington, writing to Governor Dinwiddie in London when the question came up of allowing non-members of the Church of England to settle in the lands beyond the Blue Ridge. It has ever been my opinion that restrictions on the conscience are cruel in regard to those on whom they are imposed. This from the man who was to exert a tremendous influence on George Washington during the formative years between 11 and 16. England, Holland, and Prussia are examples I may quote, and much more, Pennsylvania, which has flourished under that delightful liberty so as to become the admiration of every man who considers the short time it has been settled. Six years of exposure to a doctrine which was shockingly liberal for those times. Except for a few Quakers, we in Virginia have no dissenters. But what has been the consequence? We have increased by slow degrees, while our neighboring communities, whose natural advantages are inferior to ours, have become increasingly populous. His companion during these years was young George William Fairfax son of the colonel who lived as neighbor to Lawrence Washington. This is young Fairfax speaking. We used to go surveying together. One summer, father sent us across the Shenandoah Valley. George was the finest horseman I have ever seen. He could stay in the saddle for hours without tiring. Even at that age, he was a giant. Six feet two and 200 pounds without an ounce of fat on him. He used to be quiet for long periods of time when we were together. He had a great sense of privacy. I used to feel it would be almost sacrilegious to intrude on his thoughts during those times. What was he thinking on those long rides with Fairfax? Well, we can only guess. The colonel's son was going south to marry a tall young brunette, the beautiful Sally Carey. George Fairfax was well off. He could afford to marry. Washington, at 16, didn't have a penny to his name. Two months before Washington had met her, then Sally Fairfax married his closest friend, George William Fairfax. The following year, he went to the Barbados with his brother Lawrence. To the Barbados, where I hoped the climate would help this cough which has been clinging to me for several months now. While we were there, George contracted the smallpox and was desperately ill for some weeks. The disease immunized Washington to the plague which was to sweep through the colonial army many years later. The climate of the Barbados was exactly the wrong cure for Lawrence Washington's tubercular lungs. And he died at Mount Vernon shortly after their return. And to my beloved young half-brother George, in deepest affection, I do bequeath all of my lands and estates at Mount Vernon. Now, at twenty, he was alone, a master of an estate. With his mother, he had little contact. The brother who had cared for him since their father died had also left this world. He was physically powerful, a tremendous horseman, an athlete, and already, as one of the older ladies put it... Impudent? Well, he danced with me six times at Colonel Fairfax's reception for Sally. He is charming, though, when he wants to be. I never saw such a moody young man... My place of residence is at present at his lordship's... Washington, writing of his stay at Colonel Fairfax's plantation, where he was to spend much of the following nine years. My place of residence is at his lordship's, where I might, was my heart disengaged, 
spend my time very pleasantly, as there's a very agreeable young lady in the same house. But that's only adding fuel to fire. It makes me the more uneasy, for I often and unavoidably being in company with her revives my former passion for your lowland beauty. Thus began the relationship which was to remain an important part of Washington's inner life until his death. Some say that Sally Fairfax was a flirt. She had her portrait painted with a pretty flower in her hand and a come-hither smile on her lips. The details are not known. We know that he was Virginia's most eligible bachelor for the next nine years and never once considered marriage. We know that he wrote to Sally often of his unfulfilled love for her and that he destroyed all of his diaries and letters during this period. We know that at the age of 66, after 25 years of separation from her, years during which he had won the revolution and been twice president of the United States, he wrote to her, None of which events, however, nor all of them together, have been able to eradicate from my mind the recollection of those happy moments, the happiest in my life which I have enjoyed in your company. I do, sir. I remember the times when Colonel Washington came courting Miss Martha. Yes, I do. Great times, sir. Great times. Old Cully, Martha Custis' family servant, speaking to the historian George Washington Park Custis. He looked like a proper man, I tell you, sir. Never seen the likes of him, though I've seen many in my day. So tall, so straight when he sat on a horse and rode with such an air. Ah, sir, he was like no one else. Many of the grandest gentlemen in the gold lace were at the wedding, but none looked like the man himself. He married Martha Custis, the richest woman in Virginia, on January 6th, 1759. And did he underestimate this marriage to Martha Custis? Dr. James Craik the personal physician who attended him from childhood to his death, who knew him perhaps better than any other man. Nay, then he underestimated. Perhaps it didn't have the romance you read about in the storybooks, but it was strong and deep. Think on it. It lasted for 40 years. It survived childlessness, revolution, and years of separation. Aye, and it survived Sally Fairfax, too. I know the man. I know him like my own son. And he had a streak of honor in him that once he decided on a course of action, you couldn't swerve him. Oh, I'm not trying to persuade you that he ever forgot Sally. Far from it. But what he had with Martha, you can't break asunder. It was a relationship that grew day by day. And there's a deep satisfaction in that. They liked each other. And they respected each other. There was more to that round little woman than he had ever dreamed. Seven weeks after his marriage to Martha, he wrote Sally Fairfax. I dare to believe that you are happy, and I wish fervently that I will be happy too. Misconstrue not my meaning, doubt it not, nor expose it. And to a close friend in England? I am now, I believe, fixed at this seat with an agreeable consort for life. And I hope to find more happiness in retirement than I ever experienced amid a wide and bustling world. He was 27, and he had come to terms with his own turbulent and tormented soul. I tell you, sir, he was a hard man to know. 
But after a while, uh, some say he was stony and frozen, but when you come to know him, you get to see that he runs deep with feelings. So deep that I do believe it frightens him sometimes. There are depths in a man's soul which no one, not even himself, may plumb. He gets into rages, Thomas Jefferson. He gets into rages and passions when he cannot command himself. His temper was naturally high-toned, but reflection and resolution had obtained a firm and habitual ascendancy over it. If, however, it broke its bonds, he was most tremendous in his wrath. Sir, your impertinent letter of the 24th was delivered to me yesterday by Mr. Smith. As I am not accustomed... George Washington to Colonel Muse. As I am not accustomed to receive such from any man, nor would have taken the same from you personally without letting you feel some marks of my resentment, I would advise you to be cautious. I was his man until he died. Billy Lee, Washington's mulatto servant. And he was hard. Just as he was on himself. But he was fair. And a man could count on it. Sir, with this letter comes a Negro, which I beg favor of you to sell. Washington to the captain of a slaver, written in 1766. To sell in any of the islands to which you may go for whatever he will fetch. And bring me in return for him one hogshead of the best molasses, one hogshead of the best rum, one barrel of limes, good and cheap, one port of tamarinds, that this fellow is a rogue and a runaway, I shall not pretend to deny. But that he is exceedingly healthy and strong and good at the whole, the whole neighborhood can testify, which gives me reason to hope that he may, with your good management, sell well, if kept clean and trimmed up a little when offered for sale. We had many long talks on the subject of uh, slavery. The Marquis de Lafayette. Washington regarded as his dearest friend. And he came to see, I think, that the whole institution of slavery was abhorrent and could not be reconciled with democracy. It was characteristic of the man that his sense of justice would enable him always to select the fine principle and make it a part of his life. I hope it will not be conceived... Washington, 1786. ...from these observations... ...that it is my wish to hold... ...the unhappy people who are the subject of this letter in slavery. I can only say that there is not a man living... ...who wishes more sincerely than I do... ...to see a plan adopted for the abolition of it. But there is only one proper and effectual mode... ...by which it can be accomplished... ...and that is by legislative authority... When he died, he left it in his will that I should be free if I choose it. And he forbid any slave of his to be transported down or sold up. And he say, free all slaves which belong to him in his name. And he say, he like to free all slaves now, but some belong to Miss Washington. So when she die, they all be free. And he say, if they cannot work or find food, his heirs shall feed and clothe them. And I do moreover most pointedly and most solemnly enjoin it upon my executors to see that this clause of my will be religiously fulfilled without evasion, neglect, or delay. In 1774, 
the wealthy young fox hunter, lean and sunburned, dressed in his uniform of commander of the Virginia militia, was sent to the First Continental Congress as delegate from his own colony. He was 42 years old at the time. He had been an aide to General Braddock in the campaign against the French in 1755. He had published a rather famous account of his military expedition against Jumonville. And there was a murmur when he entered the assembly. I thought it a little ridiculous at the time. The speaker is Benjamin Franklin. He was the only man there in full uniform. Buff and blue, as I recall it. Same color he adopted for the Continentals. Well, naturally, I turned to Jefferson and asked who the fop was. That's Washington, he told me. Fox hunter from Virginia. Well, he made a speech at the Virginia Burgess only last month in which he offered it raise a thousand men at his own expense and march at their head to Boston. <laughs> I put my handkerchief in front of my face to smile at that. It occurred to me how the devil a farmer from Virginia concerned himself with the fact that they were going to close Boston and starve us out. Well, somehow I couldn't take my eyes off the man. Nobody could. He didn't seem at all foppish or ill at ease. There was an air about him. He moved easily, by far the most graceful big man I've ever seen. And when he finally spoke haltingly, ill at ease, you, you, you got the feeling that here was a man with such a fine sense of his own inner life that he bore no shame or embarrassment, even at speaking so poorly. He accepted himself with his imperfections and he knew his limitations. He is the only man I ever met who was utterly and completely devoid of personal fear. Before the Congress had ended, we all knew it. He was our man. George Washington, the man nobody knows. Our journey with Mr. Washington is only just beginning. This was part one that we just heard. So please stay tuned because in one week, Friday, April 23rd, we will hear part two in this same time slot here at 10.30 a.m. And stick around for part three on April 30th. Same time, same place, same week. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can get to the bottom of this story about the first president and uh, how they became the mysterious person that uh, we don't seem to know very much about in the here and now. that's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between, a radio zine. The first inauguration. Part 1 of 3. Issue 36. Contained The First Inauguration. Originally aired on the program Biography in Sound from the 5th of July 1955. April showers 
bring Mayflowers. Mayflowers bring summers for June. July when August you about the rest of the year. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story, music, or poetry that you'd like to send in or read, or just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com? That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. Thank you.